Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick. And with us today, we have Tom Hicks, or Pastor Tom Hicks to talk about the law and the gospel. So welcome to the podcast, and can you just kind of introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, I am the pastor of First Baptist Church of Clinton, Louisiana. I've been here for about four years. Uh, My wife is Joy, and I have four kids, uh, three older girls and then uh, a, a little boy. Well, thank you for uh, introducing yourself, and uh, we're excited to have you on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about the law and the gospel, uh, a topic that we've been looking forward to. So can you start us off by answering this first question? What is the law? Well, when we talk about the law, we can talk about it either strictly or largely. So strictly speaking, the law is any command of God. So all the imperatives of scripture are law in a strict sense. Uh, Some people think talking about the law this way is is a Lutheran way of speaking, but Louis Burkhoff, who is a a Reformed theologian, said uh, that the churches of the Reformation from the beginning identified the law as any biblical command or prohibition. And so the strict sense of speaking of a law is important because it separates sharply the law from the gospel. And so that's the law, strictly speaking, it's any command or prohibition in the Bible. Uh, But largely speaking, the law is uh, a covenant. Uh, It's the covenant of works. And when we speak of the law largely, uh, we're thinking uh, of the commands of the law with a promise of life attached to it. And so you have uh, the command in Scripture that says, do this and live. That's Leviticus 18.5. That's the law as a covenant. And that's an echo of the original garden covenant of works where you had uh, Adam being created by God and then put into the garden of Eden, was given commands by God to obey. And the tree of life was a tree of eternal life. That was a promise uh, that uh, of reward to Adam for perfectly obeying the law. And this idea of the law as a covenant or the law, largely speaking is crucial because it, it shows that the only way to have eternal life is through perfect obedience to God's law, that God could never justly give eternal life to sinful human beings uh, because uh, because what's required is perfection. And this is, and understanding the law this way is really important too, because uh, under the gospel, we need Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us to give us the right to eternal life. And so if anyone rejects this idea of the law as a covenant, they're going to have a hard time understanding or explaining why Uh, Jesus had to perfectly keep the law for us so that we could have eternal life. Moving on, um, 
in discussions of the law and the gospel and the law in particular, uh, when I preached through the Ten Commandments, one thing that I, I ran into was describing the different functions of the law. So could you tell us what the functions of the law are, or at least how the Reformed world has understood them, and where do we see these concepts in Scripture? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, John Calvin identified three uses of the law. The first use is the civil use, which is the law's restraining use. And so what this is about is there's a threat of natural, social, or civil consequences uh, for breaking the law, uh, for violating the law's commands outwardly. There are natural kinds of consequences, uh, sometimes civil consequences. So for example, the threat of the death penalty for murder might keep people from murdering, but that threat cannot keep you from murdering people in your heart. And so the civil use of the law restrains outward corruptions, but it doesn't transform the heart. Uh, Samuel Bolton said that the law can stop up a polluted fountain, but only the gospel can heal its streams. And when he said that, he was referring to the civil use of the law. Uh, one place we can see the civil use of the law in scriptures in Romans 2.15 which says that the Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. And so they, they know that there's something wrong with breaking the law, even pagans, unbelievers, and that, that there's a restraining function uh, in the law in that way. Another place is Romans 13, 4, which speaks of governing authorities. It says, uh, that governing authorities are God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's servant, uh, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so the, when the government is properly functioning, it enforces the outward aspect of the second table of the law and so restrains social wickedness in that way. That's the civil use. That's the first use of the law. Uh, the second use of the law is a pedagogical use of the law. Uh, and this is the use of the law that drives us to Christ, both believers and unbelievers. Um, the law shows unbelievers their sin, and it points them to Jesus as the only way to be redeemed from their sin. Uh, but the law also reminds believers of our sin and points us back to Christ for forgiveness and mercy in Him, even as we live as Christians. And so this pedagogical use is pointing us to Jesus. The law shows us our need of a Redeemer and we can see this uh, in a couple of places in Scripture. One is in Galatians 3.24, which says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So this, this word guardian is schoolmaster or tutor that, that leads us to Jesus for justification by faith. Also, we see it in Paul's testimony of conversion in Romans 7, 9 to 10, where Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So in other words, Paul's saying as a Pharisee, he thought he lived, even though he didn't, uh, he thought he was alive apart from the law. But when he came to understand the full import of the law, particularly the command not to covet, uh, sin came alive in him, in him and he died. And the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death. And so this is what drove him to, to see his need of a redeemer, even as a Pharisee who outwardly kept the law. And so that's the pedagogical use of the law that drives us to Jesus. The third use of the law is the didactic or the normative use of the law. And this is the most controversial 
uh, because it says that God's law is the standard or rule of walking for believers in Jesus Christ. And that's very important to understand because what it means is we don't learn as believers of God's will from new revelations of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't learn what God wants from us from sources outside the law or even from some general sense of love that's undefined and vague or maybe culturally defined. Uh, but rather, uh, we know what God requires of us as believers because he has revealed and commanded it to us in his law. And the law of God is a very definition of love to God and love to others. And we can find this uh, third use of the law in a number of places in scripture, but one place is in Romans 8, 4, uh, where Paul says that Christ died for our sins in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so that's really important to see that for believers who are redeemed by Jesus, we're to fulfill the law, that the law of God is to be fulfilled in us, not just for us by Jesus, but in us as we walk according to the Spirit. Another place you see this third use of the law is Titus 2.14, which is the negative. It says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And so what Jesus does when he redeems us is he makes us lawful. He removes our lawlessness and, and transforms us and makes us lawful. You can also see the third use of the law in the, in the New Covenant in Hebrews 8, the work that the law is written on our hearts as, as members of the New Covenant. And so uh, that, those are the three uses of the law. You have the civil use, the pedagogical use, and the didactic use. Well, thank you for that. I'm certain it will be a help to our audience, to our listeners. Uh, so we've talked about the functions of the law. Now let's move the discussion to uh, the divisions of the law. Can we infer from Scripture that there are distinctions or divisions of God's law? Yes, absolutely. Um, the greatest division of the law is between moral and positive law. Moral law is written on our heart. And I'll, I'll show you in a minute in the scriptures where it teaches this, but moral law is written on our heart and we know it by nature because we're made in the image of God. Positive law is law that you would not know by nature unless God told you. Moral law transcends all covenants, but positive law is tied to the particular covenant in which it's given. So that's a major division in all biblical law. You have law that you know innately, and you have law that has to be revealed covenantally. Uh, it's been said that the difference between moral and positive law is that with one, God commands it because it's right. Moral law is a law God commands because it's inherent in God's own nature. It must be a law. That's moral law. Um, but with the other, it's right because God commands it. There's nothing inherently right about uh, positive laws, but they become right because God commands them, like don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, that's not an inherently moral law, but, but it's, it's right now because God commanded it in the original Garden Covenant. So that's the main division, moral and positive law. But then we also need to understand that positive law is divided into two parts. So there's judicial law and ceremonial law. 
Uh, sometimes this is, you think of all three of them, it's a threefold division of the law, moral law, judicial law, and ceremonial law. Judicial law is positive law that has to do with the, the laws pertaining to the government of Israel. And then ceremonial law has to do with the laws regulating the temple worship of the old covenant. And, and Israel would never have known to do these laws unless they were revealed in the covenants. And so there's one big division of law, moral and positive, but there are two kinds of positive law, judicial and ceremonial. And I'd refer you to a couple of places of scripture that teach this distinction. Uh, one is in Deuteronomy 4, verses 13 and 14. This is a classical text to teach this. Um, the church fathers used it, and it says, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the 10 commandments. That, that is the 10 words. So there's the first kind of law. Uh, that's part of the essence of the Mosaic Covenant. And then he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And then verse 14 of Deuteronomy 4 says, And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. And so you have the Ten Commandments, which uh, God commands, and then the Lord commands Moses to teach statutes and rules to be done in the land. So the statutes and rules are particular to the land of Canaan, and they have to do with uh, civil and, uh, and ceremonial obedience in the land of Canaan, uh, whereas the Ten Commandments are laws to be obeyed transcendently. And so you have two different kinds of law, the Ten Commandments, and, you have the stat and, the, and then you have statutes and rules, a second kind. Um, another place you can see this distinction where I think we can infer it is in Deuteronomy 31, 26 where the book of the law is put outside the Ark of the Covenant. So in the Ark of the Covenant, you have the two tables of stone, the Ten Commandments. But the writings of Moses, the book of the law, that it contains, uh, contains ceremonial and judicial laws, are, is, is put outside the Ark. That's, uh, that's significant in terms of a, from a, a, a typological or a visual type of a, of a standpoint is that there's the, the Ten Commandments alone were in the Ark of the Covenant, and then the Book of the Law is put outside of it. You can also see this distinction or this division in, in Romans 2 in the New Testament, where Paul says that the Gentiles have the work of the law written on their hearts. Uh, and then you can ask, what law is he talking about? What, what law is written on the hearts of Gentiles? Well, in Romans 2, verses 21 to 23, he lists some of the Ten Commandments. So clearly, Paul is talking about the Ten Commandments, that, or the, the essence of the Ten Commandments, is written on the hearts of all men, Gentiles, Jews alike. But then Paul makes a very interesting statement. In Romans 2.26, he says, If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And so you think about that circumcision was a command of the old covenant law. There's no way you could be regarded a law keeper if you weren't circumcised. Uh, in fact, it was the point at which you were to be cut off. If anyone was not circumcised in the Abrahamic covenant, he was to be cut off from the people. But here Paul is saying that there is a conception of law that is distinct from circumcision or any of the, the positive aspect of the old covenant law. And so you can see this here, we can infer this from Romans 2, where moral law is written on our hearts, positive, and you can keep that and be faithful to God as, an, as a Gentile, even if you don't keep the positive law of the Old Covenant.
Um, so there's the, how I basically describe or try to discuss the divisions of, of the law. Thank you for, for that explanation. Um, as I said at the beginning, we're going to be talking about the law and the gospel. So at this point, we're going to transition to talk about the gospel. And how would you define the gospel? So what is the gospel? Yeah, well, just as I would distinguish between the law strictly and the law largely, I would also distinguish between the gospel strictly and the gospel largely. Uh, so the gospel strictly is, is a pure promise of redemption in Jesus Christ. So every promise in the Bible that's a redemptive promise is gospel. And, and it could, you can find it uh, in the scriptures where it says Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. So the gospel, as a strictly speaking, the gospel as a promise has no commands in it at all. Uh, the pure gospel says that God in Christ promises to save us completely. It's God's promise to justify us and his promise to sanctify us and his promise to bring us all the way to the end and glorify us. All that is God's work. He works it all in us and for us. Um, and, and the strict understanding of the gospel is absolutely crucial because it, it means that Christ alone saves it's a pure promise. Jesus saves us. The Father sends the Son, uh, and then the Spirit works his, uh, the Son's work within us. This is the gospel, that God does it all, and there's nothing that we do or that God commands us to do that actually saves us. So that's the gospel strictly. It's a pure promise. Uh, but, the, but the gospel largely is covenantal. So the gospel as a covenant involves a promise and a command. You can see this in the new covenant where the gospel is expressed covenantally. Uh, it's, it's life is yours, now do this. So, so remember the law largely was do this and live. The gospel largely is life is yours. That is the, the right to life is yours. Now in light of this free gift of the right to life, obey God's law. And so in the new covenant of grace, God saves us completely. He promises justification by grace alone, through faith alone. But then on the basis of the free promise of God, he commands us to believe on Jesus, to repent of our sins and keep the commandments, all on the basis of this free promise of the gospel. And this, this covenantal understanding of the gospel is really crucial because it gives us the right order of first comes grace, then comes law. First, God gives us the gift of eternal life in the gospel. Then God commands us to obey him. And if we don't get that order right, uh, then we'll be in big trouble in our walk with Jesus. Uh, we are never as Christians to obey to earn promises of life. Rather, we obey because God has already given life to us. We obey from the right to life, not for the right to life. And so that's how I would understand the gospel in the scriptures both strictly and largely. Well, you alluded to this, making some uh, comparisons and distinctions in the answer, but let's flush it out a little bit more. How are the law and the gospel related, and how are they distinct? Yeah, well, the, the first thing to understand is that the law and the gospel are both good. Some think of the, the law as bad and the gospel is good. That's false. Both law and gospel come from God. They're both good from God. 
And so the law and the gospel are related. They're connected to each other. And the first thing we can see is that the gospel is Christ's fulfillment of the law. What is the gospel? Jesus perfectly obeyed the law to earn its blessing of life. And he died on the cross to pay the curse of death to the law. That is the gospel. So the law and gospel are tightly connected in Jesus. But second, the law and the gospel are related in that the gospel redeems us through faith in Christ. But then the, the gospel points us back to the law, not as a way to be saved, but as the way to love God and to love others in light of the gospel. So that's how the law and the gospel are related to each other, but they're, they're also very distinct. We have to understand they're not only connected or related, they're also distinct. And they're distinct in two ways. Uh, first, the law and the gospel reveal two very different ways to obtain eternal life. The law says you have to do this for the right to life. The gospel says Christ did this for your life. Uh, you could think of it as the law says do, the gospel says done for you. That's the law gospel distinction. But there's a second way that they're distinct, and that is the law and the gospel are distinct in terms of the practical motivation for Christian living. So the law tells you how to live as a Christian, but the law does not give you strength to obey the law. Uh, but the gospel, uh, in the hand of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit applies the promises of Christ to you, the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, gives you strength to live as a Christian and to obey the law. And so there's a distinction there in terms of Christian living as well. And so they are both related and they're distinct from each other. Sometimes in, in Reformed literature and, and, and in some debates, we, we hear the talk about the law and the gospel functioning as a hermeneutic. So can you explain what exactly that means and, and why it's important to understand these things? Yeah, um, well, a her hermeneutic is a way you understand a theory of understanding how to read and interpret the scriptures. And as we've just seen, the law and the gospel can be viewed covenantally, and the Bible is a book of covenants. And so when you're studying the Bible, you need to understand what covenant you're in. Are you in a law covenant or are you in a gospel covenant? Is this a covenant of works in the garden? Is it uh, the old covenant, which, has, which is, has legal and gospel elements to it? Or is it the new covenant, which is pure, uh, purely gospel? And so it it's orients you to where you are in the scriptures but then just even in terms of preaching or when you're reading the Bible yourself, when, uh, when you come to a particular text, you need to identify whether that passage is, is law or gospel. So ask yourself, is this a legal imperative or is it a gospel promise? Uh, if it's a command of the law, uh, then pastors need to preach it as law, but they should also broaden their context so they can come to see the promise of, of the gospel. Because what we're, what we're doing as pastors, as preachers, we're, in every sermon, we're trying to preach a particular text in its proper context and in light of the whole counsel of God. And so if there's a, a text that's primarily law, we need to widen our context law, broad enough so that we can see its connection to the gospel that we might properly preach and motivate God's people. Similarly, if we come to a passage that's purely a promise of the gospel, we need uh, to look at a large enough context to see the implications of that promise in terms of the law. 
And so I, I believe it's very important for Christians as they read their Bible to know kind of what's going on and where they are in the scriptures. And it's vitally important for pastors and those who preach God's word uh, to preach law and gospel together, both as they're related and as they're distinct for the good of God's people. Well, you just uh, gave some practical ramifications of understanding the law and the gospel, but uh, what are some other practical ramifications or rightly or wrongly understanding how the gospel and the law either relate or differ? Yeah, well, if you don't distinguish carefully between law and gospel, then you lose them both. So what happens if you don't distinguish them? You blend them. You end up mixing them and you get something instead like a soft law that's neither really law nor gospel, but that's some blend of both, which ultimately implies that if you can, that if you keep the law well enough, though not perfectly, then God will accept you, which that's the very definition of, of legalism. And even if we don't say that explicitly, if you don't preach properly and teach properly, there can be an implication that that's the case, that some sort of soft obedience to the law uh, makes you acceptable before God. On the other hand, some people uh, don't rightly understand law and gospel in the way that they so separate law from gospel that they make the law bad and they make the gospel good and they end up turning every command in the Bible into something Christ fulfilled for you such that you don't even have to, to obey it. You know, if you come to a command, Jesus did that and praise the Lord, Jesus, you know, fulfilled it in the gospel, which is the very definition of antinomianism. And so if you don't understand the distinction and the connection between law and gospel, you will fall into the ditch of legalism or antinomianism. Um, so that, that's, that would be my practical exhortation about law and gospel. And, Earlier, you alluded to the pastor's preaching in terms of law and gospel and how it's, it's vital, but how should a pastor, other than his preaching, shepherd his flock in light of both the law and the gospel? Yeah, I, I think that um, understanding law and gospel is really a, a roadmap for leadership. You think about what is leadership, it's seeking to lead people in God's way. And how do you do that? What motives do you use as a leader to motivate people? Well, you can either use legal motives or you can use gospel motives. And pastors who don't, uh, who don't understand that sometimes end up not properly motivating God's people. Uh, also, pastors who don't believe that Christians should obey the law of God uh, try to lead in such a way that they, they end up substitu substituting their own personal preferences or their own laws for God's law. Because, you know, as a pastor, you're leading and you've got to lead some way. And what are you leading to? How, what are you trying to get God's people to do? And if it's not the law of God, then it is uh, it's something else. You're substituting your own standard uh, for God's standard. Uh, on So, uh, on the other hand, pastors who don't understand how the gospel motivates our obedience uh, will preach God's law, but they'll preach the law without rooting the law in the gospel and without providing gospel promise motives in Jesus for obedience to the law. Um, faithful pastors try to preach God's law to convict sinners and to point them to Christ, but they also show 
the church why they should obey the law on the basis of the gospel of Jesus. Um, so, for example, what are some gospel motivations that lead to keeping the law? Well, joy in Christ for all that he's done. Uh, heralding Christ and his bloody death and his blessed resurrection as a motive of joy and thus obedience to him. Full satisfaction, uh, the imputed righteousness of Jesus, assurance on the basis of these things, the hope of the gracious gospel rewards in the future, the promise of communion with Christ in the present. Uh, and so there are the only proper motives that a, a, a Christian pastor should use are gospel motives, and the only proper standard that he should use are God's are the commands of God's law. And so if, if a pastor doesn't get this right, he substitutes himself for law and gospel, um, or he motivates people wrongly to keep God's law, which is uh, not leading as Christ would lead. Well, we have been uh, talking about the law, the gospel, their, uh, how they're related, how they're distinct. This next question is a little bit different, uh, but I'm excited to hear your answer. Okay. Did Jesus break the law, as some have suggested, whenever he touched the leper or whenever his disciples plucked heads of grain? Yeah, no, Jesus did not break the law. The Bible teaches he fulfilled all righteousness, uh, but he did keep it wisely. And what you see in both of those cases where he touched the leper or his disciples plucked heads of, of, of grain, and, and some of these cases, what what he's breaking is the law of the Pharisees. So it's an imposed law by the Pharisees. But also, Jesus teaches in, in Matthew 12 that whenever you have what appears to be a conflict between a moral and a positive law, you don't stand on the positive law, rather you keep the moral law. So, uh, for, and, he, and, he, and he teaches, so for example, you know, that David um, ate, the, ate the bread in the temple. Uh, in order to feed his himself and his soldiers, which was technically not allowed. You weren't allowed to do that. But in order to not murder, he violated positive uh, ceremonial law. And that's actually keeping the law. The Old Testament uh, teaches that that's proper. And Jesus used the Old Testament to prove this. Also in Matthew 23, verses 23 and 4, Jesus warned the Pharisees. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, which is, of course, positive law. But then he says, You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, which is, of course, moral law. And Jesus says, These you should have done without, without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so, uh, if it's if it's ever between moral law and positive law, we have to keep moral law first. We shouldn't sacrifice people uh, for the sake of keeping a positive law. This final question, and and I've appreciated all the time that you've taken and the studying you've done to talk about the subject. But if if someone were to want to explore this subject more, what are some sources that you would recommend to both lay people? and pastors. And then part two of this question is, where can people find your work on, on the internet or anywhere for that matter? Sure. Um, well, I, I recommend three sources, and I would recommend these for pastors, but also for lay people. Uh, the first is A Treatise on the Law and the Gospel by John Cahoon, and his last name is spelled like Colquahoon. 
Uh, that book is still available, I believe, and it's excellent. He was a Merriman and uh, represents part of the, be the best of that tradition, I believe. But it's a treatise on the law and the gospel by John Cahoon. A second book is Lectures on the Law and the Gospel by Stephen Ting, which is also just a fantastic treatment of the law and the gospel, looking at it from a little bit of a different angle, but it's the same teaching. And then a third one is True Bounds of Christian Freedom by Samuel Bolton, uh, which is the one I started on. It might be a little tougher read than the first two, but it's very holistic and uh, you have to pay attention as you're reading it, but it's excellent. It's a very good treatment <clears throat> of the law and the gospel. And uh, as for myself, uh, you could go to my, my website, which is pastortomhicks.com and see different sources uh, there listed. Also, I have some stuff on founders.org as well. So you can go to either place. Well, uh, Tom, we want to thank you today for joining the show to talk about this important uh, topic of discussion, the law and the gospel. So thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. God bless you. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.